BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With respect to the Democratic Party, um, look, as I said in the Rose Garden right after the election, when your team loses, everybody gets deflated. And uh, it's hard. And it's challenging. Um, and so I think it's a healthy thing for the Democratic Party to go through uh, some reflection. This is Jack Rico, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I've put aside my regular pop culture show to use this forum to have important, meaningful discussions on our new American reality. We've had a little bit more than a week to digest that Donald Trump is our president. The shock has begun to slightly wear off, now angst has settled in and many questions are starting to arise. How do we come together as a country now? What is our civic responsibility to ourselves and our fellow Americans? What actions must we now take? What responsibility must we now carry to contribute to quick and visible change in our nation? How do we not normalize Trump's dangerous and hateful stances? What are we really willing to do for change? These are tough questions to ask and tougher to even answer, but hopefully this show will give us a closer look at what we're confronting and what we can do about it. In this episode, I chat with Sean Braswell, a senior writer at Ozzy.com, to take me through who he thinks are the top political contenders poised to challenge Trump in 2020. And are we officially now in the age of the celebrity president? With The Rock now also interested in becoming the man in the Oval Office, how serious do we take our celebrities' political ambitions moving forward? Also, is the psychology of America shifting to the 60s culture wars? What is the future of multiculturalism in America, and what is our role in it? Vox.com writer Sean Illing explains the complexities in maintaining a multi-ethnic democracy. I will then be joined by reporter Oliver Staley from the business website Quartz to illustrate the potential threat to corporate workplace inclusion under the Trump administration. And we end with same-sex marriage attorney and Trump supporter Brad Burfus about the realistic outlook at Trump nullifying same-sex marriages. As we look ahead to the future of our country, many people are asking who will be the next leader of the Democratic Party and who, on the Republican side, can rival Trump for 2020. To answer these questions, I chat with Sean Braswell, senior writer at Ozzy.com, and who wrote the article, Who Might Challenge a President Trump in 2020? Thanks, Sean, for being on the podcast. Glad to be here, Jack. Let's jump right in and talk about who the top Democratic contenders are for 2020. Many people are saying that the reason we lost the presidency was because Clinton wasn't the right candidate for the times. If that is the case, then who is? 
Well, I think you're correct. Uh, Hillary Clinton really occupied the field in 2016 and uh, crowded out a lot of uh, potential rising stars in the party who uh, decided to wait their turn. And uh, I think the opposite could be true in 2020. I think you could see a very wide open field with a dozen or more candidates, not unlike uh, the Republican field uh, this past year. And I think you have to start by looking at the, uh, the Democrats in the Senate from Elizabeth Warren, of course, who I think will take an even larger uh, role in the party as a figurehead and as a major um, uh, gatherer, gatherer of donations for, for her fellow Democrats. Um, Let's talk about her for a little bit. What skill sets does Elizabeth have that you think might make her the front runner for 2020? Because, uh, you know, she's not fluffy and warm and fuzzy necessarily uh she seems to be a divisive figure at times when she speaks but she also can take it to trump like no one else ever has true and i i think you're going to see a similar dynamic as developed uh in the early 2000s with uh howard dean uh being a a uh, someone that liberals could uh back, at least early on, uh, to oppose George W. Bush very vocally. And I think she will be uh, a darling of the left for a while because she is such an articulate critic of Trump. But there's also, I think, going to be a movement in the party towards the more progressive side of the party, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. And uh, people are going to say, if we really want to win, we have to steer closer to where Bernie was in 2016 than where Hillary was. And and uh, Elizabeth Warren is just a natural uh, leader, the most popular figure in the party um, to head that movement. Then you have Cory Booker, which I thought was very interesting. I saw him speak at the uh, Democratic National Convention. And I hate to say this, but this is true. We're looking for a new Obama. And every time we see an African-American, uh, Keith Ellison is someone that's being talked about now as the uh, as the chair for the DNC. Um, we're looking for any African-American to kind of hold the same characteristic or traits that, that uh, Barack Obama has. Does Corey even – is he even close to what Obama is? Uh, no, and I don't think anyone's close to what Obama is. Uh, and, if, and if you look, you know, Democrats love to fall in love. And if you look at the past two Democratic presidents, you have these really unique and very gifted um, politicians in Bill Clinton and Barack Obama who were able to mobilize these large coalitions of voters. And I, I think Cory Booker probably has the best bet to mobilize young minority female voters uh, in 2020 to try to sort of rekindle the flame in the Obama coalition that won in 2008 and 2012. But I would also think that a, a potential long shot and uh, who could do the same thing is Kamala Harris, who was just uh, recently elected to the Senate uh, in California and who could pull an Obama of her own, basically one partial term in the Senate before uh, launching uh, her, her bid for the presidency four years later. Julian Castro is another name that's been bandied around um, as a Hispanic figure. Um, when Barack Obama, the first African-American president, was elected, uh, many liberals, many, many people in this country said, well, we have to follow it up with a woman. It's just the only way to continue to progress. Uh, Hispanics have also been talked about as occupying the Oval Office. Julian Castro has been a name, but I feel like he sort of um, kind of disappeared. He just wasn't impressive enough to many people to take a shot on him. But in 2012, he was the keynote speaker at the DNC. What about Julian Castro? 
I think Castro, I think you're, you're probably right. I think his moment may have passed. Uh, hmm. You know, I, I, one of the ways to, to, to stay relevant is to continue to hold some uh, political office. And uh, he may make a move in Texas now that now that he will be finished as uh, in Obama's cabinet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he does next if he tries to make a bid for uh, for an office in Texas. It could be a launching pad to to national office, or if he waits um, and bides his time for a for a Senate seat or a Congress seat in Texas. But uh, I, I think it's going to be a wait and see for Castro. I think uh, if he is going to be relevant, it's more likely to be eight years down the track than four years. Now I notice you didn't mention Bernie Sanders. Don't you think that he might want to run in 2020, or this is it for him? It's probably it uh, for Bernie. Um, I, I, I think uh, he will be a key figure uh, in wielding influence with, with whomever becomes uh, the frontrunner in 2020. I think he still has a lot of clout in the party and, and a large following, but I see him more being the head of an internal movement right now than a, than a viable presidential candidate in the future. Moving over to the Republican side, uh, in your article, you've mentioned Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz, and Marco Rubio. I don't know about Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. They're both Hispanic, but uh, after what I saw, I feel like history would repeat itself with Donald Trump, them going against Donald. But Paul is different. How different is Paul? And can he give Donald Trump a run for his money? Honestly, I don't see Paul Ryan being a major factor in 2020. Unless really? He completely goes completely go sideways on the Trump presidency. I think as you're seeing already, um, Republicans, including Ryan and Cruz, are sort of starting to fall in line behind Trump, and uh, you know they're realizing, you know, kind of like kids in a candy shop, that uh, you know this guy who just let them into the candy shop is the uh, is the best way forward. And I think things would have to be a disaster, or, or really start to go sideways before you would see um, Republicans look for an, an, a new leader. Now, yeah, I think you could get a renegade like Cruz who will test the political winds and who has ambitions of his own who could run in 2020, who could be sort of a turncoat and challenge um, Trump. But uh, I think you'd have to be looking at that sort of turncoat right now rather than some major institutional figure in the party deciding uh, that, there, that the party needed a new direction. And before we wrap up, um, one thing that uh, wasn't in your article because it's so new, but it's it's a different approach to picking uh, somebody that's not necessarily a Democrat or a Republican in the political frame, and it's celebrities. We yes. haven't seen this amount of interest in celebrities wanting to become president since just two weeks ago. Uh, Chris Rock, Kanye West, Ron Perlman have announced that they want to become presidents of the United States. The thing is, back then, it was seen, It just seemed like a joke, the same way that Donald Trump running for president seemed like a joke. But now that he's actually in office, a reality star who never served one day in office in anything, shouldn't we take celebrities like Kanye West more seriously? Because I think we're moving into that age of the celebrity president. They have to connect with citizens. They have to be a little bit controversial and magnetic. And I can't stop thinking that Kanye West could actually have a shot. Am I am I crazy? I, I think I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility anymore. And if you look at Trump as part of the tail end of a longer phenomenon, if you think back to Arnold Schwarzenegger, even Ronald Reagan, even Ronald Reagan, Reagan right? Body Ventura, we've had a tendency to to go towards celebrities. Even Barack Obama himself, uh, you know, people derided him for being a celebrity candidate, but that was part of his appeal as well. And I think uh, Trump 
you know, the fact that, that uh, someone with no political experience, like you said, has made it to the highest office in the land is going to make it that pathway that much more viable. And you could see some unusual prospects. And I think you're much more likely to see a celebrity than a billionaire businessman to follow Trump. Um, because like a Bloomberg. One reason, but yeah, because of the scrutiny. I think, uh, I think a lot of uh, billionaires don't want to undergo the scrutiny that Trump underwent during the campaign. Even though he didn't release his taxes, he refused to do lots of things. He still was under a microscope. And I don't think, a, I think celebrities are more accustomed to being under a microscope, including their personal lives, than, uh, than billionaire businessmen and women are. It's incredible. <laughs> the fact that we have to take celebrities now very seriously on their political plans. It's just, uh, we're living in a new world. Uh, Sean Braswell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You can read Sean Braswell's article, Who Might Challenge a President Trump in 2020, at Ozzy.com. Sean, thanks. Thank you. To understand where we are going, we have to understand the dynamics at play contributing to the current social and political disruption. Is the fear of multiculturalism at the root of Republicans' angst? For that, I bring in Sean Illing, a professor of politics and philosophy and a writer for Vox.com, who wrote this week, Why Social Media is Terrible for Multi-Ethnic Democracies. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. It's great to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me. In your article, you spoke to NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt about many things, including multiculturalism. Did you confirm if there was a correlation between the rise of Trump, growing global populism or nationalism, and multi-ethnic groups? I think there's certainly a link, and I think it's impossible to miss. I mean, I think one of the problems we have in terms of political discourse is often we think we're arguing about the way the world is, the facts. But in fact, what we're really arguing about is the way we think the world ought to be. And what Jonathan studies is the sort of moral impulses and the kind of core value judgments beneath our political attitudes. These are, the, these are the values from which our political beliefs spring. And conservatives and liberals, to take just two, I mean, you can, you can break it down in different ways, but I think, you know, liberal conservatives is what most people understand. They see the world in very different ways. And you know, I think Heights point is that when people perceive that things are getting troubled or things are, are, are slipping away, uh, liberals and conservatives tend to retreat into these core impulses. And what distinguishes the conservative mindset is, is a kind of desire for, for moral order, for tradition, for cultural consistency. And so when things are perceived as going bad, uh, what they do is, is tend to close ranks. Uh, and that leads to a kind of hostility to, to the alien other, to foreign groups, to any actors who are seen as not, uh, as outside of the traditional in-group. Uh, and it's really a kind of tribalism, uh, writ large. It really is just political, political tribalism. And what's happening in Europe with the immigration crisis and a lot of other factors, uh, is a, a kind of crisis, a kind of cultural crisis where you have a lot of uh, immigrants are moving into companies, uh, into countries rather, and they're not being assimilated into those societies economically, politically, socially, and that's creating real unrest. And so now you're having a pushback. There's been a reaction against that, uh, a right-wing fascistic reaction against that. People want to drive out these others, these foreign groups, and restore what they consider the kind of moral norm. Explain to me about moral order, because when I think of morality, I think of... Uh 
anti-racism, basically all the core values of the Democrats, of the, of the left. So when you say moral order, it, 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 it's a little incoherent for me because sure. I understand that there's a morality that, that, that activates their political views. But within that morality, it just seems there's something off. I think what you have to remember is that morality is relative. It's relative to, to, to whatever you value. And so what you consider good is going to, is going to hinge on, on what you consider, what you value in the world. And so if you're uh, a conservative, uh, by, by moral order, I think with, with what you mean is a society that is homogenous, a society that shares more or less uh, a, a body of, of values and practices and rituals and traditions. And if you're a liberal, what you tend to value, not that you don't value those things, but if you're a liberal, what you tend to value is, is inclusiveness and tolerance of other groups and other ideas, equality, these sorts of things. And those are very much intention. Uh, if you're conservative, what you mean by order is closing ranks and, and purging those, those, those foreign bodies from the body politic and creating a more homogenous, more insular society. And I think that's what we're seeing here. In your article, uh, Jonathan said that part that, that a lot of the genesis of this began in the 19th century. Uh, there was a conflict between labor and capital, which was the rub between Democrats and Republicans at the time. And as soon as the 60s in America came and in Europe, then all these new dynamics uh, came into play, like civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. Parting from the 60s, moving forward, I had thought we had taken care of all of this. And so today in 2016, what is the dynamic at play today then? Well, in many ways, we're still fighting the culture war, which really started in the 60s. I think Hyde's point was that the, the sort of big political fault line uh, really had a lot to do with sort of class interest. You know, that's what he was talking about with labor and capital, the kind of capitalism versus communism, this kind of thing. And once the sort of... once. Uh, communism really started to decline, and it was clear that capitalism had kind of won the day. This is Francis Fukuyama's, you know, big thesis with the end of history, which is basically just a declaration that capitalism is kind of won, and this is the economic order. But what happened in the 60s uh, with the kind of countercultural movement is the conversation changed. And what it became about was diversity, uh, racial equality, uh, fighting discrimination, uh, a cultural openness. You know, basically, this is the birth of kind of cultural progressivism. And traditionalists and conservatives were not okay with this. Uh, this was this was this is the battle that was being fought in the '60s, and in many ways, it's being fought now. It's just manifesting in different ways. I mean, this is this is what the battle for, say, uh, you know, same-sex marriage is really about. Right? There's an element of the country that that thinks that homosexuality is wrong, both for religious reasons and both because they think it's 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 culturally anathema. Uh, and they see that as a, as they see that this push for same-sex marriage as an extension of this cultural progressive movement, and they're very much battling against that. And so, when we're spending our time, we're spending more time fighting these culture wars than we are talking about actual uh, economic policies. And that is, I think, a very, very bad thing for us, as, as Jonathan points out uh, in in the interview, because if we're talking about if we're having a, a fight over these core values, it's really intractable. So how do we begin to trust each other once again? How do we begin to kind of uh, forge a bridge where we can come together and create a country that all of us want? Well, yeah, 
I hate to have to say it, I, I just don't have very good news uh, on this front. You know, we end the, the, the conversation that I had with Professor Hyde in a kind of depressing fashion because, you know, his, his point was that social media and I think the Internet more generally has, has made it almost impossible uh, for us to have a conversation across ideological lines. And that's because we're, we're living in, in information bubbles. A democracy requires deliberation, and deliberation, uh, deliberation requires that people be uh, grounded in the same facts. We, we, have to be, we have to be talking about the same thing. And if you live in a situation in which you have a version of reality that is shaped by your reality, or rather you have a version of reality that is shaped by your ideology. And you can go to, to websites, you can, go, you can listen to radio shows, you can listen to certain cable networks that will beam that reality right back at you. They will tell you, they will give you the version of the world you want to live in. And so long as that's the case, people are never going to really engage one another because they really are, in a fundamental sense, living in different universes with different facts. And that makes it very, very hard. We're all sort of balkanized in that way. And the media has made that uh, much more uh, problematic. And I, and I don't know how we get around that. I, I don't know how we all come together and, and sort of proceed from this sort of shared uh, reality. Because we, we, all, we all are, are in our own ways living in our own bubbles. And that makes it very, very difficult to communicate. And that's, that's really the problem we're facing because social media isn't going away. The internet isn't going away. Uh, as long as people want to have their their visions of the world beamed back at them, the market will continue to supply it. I'll be honest with you about something. I feel that society was asleep at the wheel for a long, long time, man. And I think what this did, and it's the silver lining that I see, is that it woke everybody up. They became aware of the political environment that we live in and how we do form a part of that. And whatever our feelings are, whatever our thoughts are, whatever our viewpoints are now really matter more than ever. And so that's what I like about this. And I don't want to call it a unity because it's not. This, uh, the, the country's obviously polarized, and divided, but amongst the left, they've united and amongst the right, now we're united. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's some truth in that. I was talking to someone about this the other night, actually. And, you know, I was saying kind of the same thing, which is that we've been sort of tumbling towards an abyss for a very long time. Um, and people tend to take political order uh, for granted. They don't realize how, how close we are uh, at, at any moment to, to losing it. And when something unthinkable happens, and I think what, what happened last week was in many ways, unthinkable, certainly a year or two ago it would have been. Uh, that definitely has a way of shaking people out of their, their stupors. And if, if nothing else good comes out of this, at least maybe that will be the one thing. You can read Sean Illing's article, Why Social Media is Terrible for Multi-Ethnic Democracies, at Vox.com. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jack. President Obama was one of the few presidents to believe in diversity in the White House. Take Sonia Sotomayor in the Supreme Court, for example. But now what will happen to diversity under President-elect Donald Trump? Will it continue to grow or will it be shed to the side? To discuss this, I welcome Oliver Staley, who covers management and workplace issues for the business website Quartz, who wrote the article, For Eight Years, the White House Champion Workplace Diversity and Inclusion, What Now? Oliver, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. President Obama was the embodiment of workplace diversity, evident by the people that worked around him. Now that he's leaving and calls of racism and white nationalism are hurled at Donald Trump, what kind of diversity environment can we expect from Trump's White House? Well, so, uh, you know, we the, the jury's out. He hasn't, he's only made two real appointments, so we don't know what his White House is going to look like. And controversial um, appointments already. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the appointment of Steve Bannon uh, is, if that's any indication, may signal certainly a less inclusive um, White House and one that does not place the same uh, importance on uh, inclusion, diversity, and, and equality. Uh, Steve Bannon is uh, on the record of, of not um, putting a very high priority on those subjects and, and has been dismissive and, and critical of, of women's efforts to um, uh, achieve equal pay. And, you know, he's been very critical of feminism and um, uh, efforts along those lines. So we, we simply don't know what his cabinet or White House appointments are going to look like. Um, but we, there are things that he can do and, and not do um, that's going to affect diversity nationally. And, and that, is, that was sort of the, the focus of my article, um, because that, I think, can be very worrisome. Why did you want to write this article? What were the trends? What exactly was it that stood out as soon as the election uh, was over that sort of you were confronted with? What, what struck me is how different Trump's rhetoric has been from the rhetoric we have gotten from President Obama and business leaders uh, more generally, which is that they see a, a value in uh, inclusion. They see a value in bringing diverse uh, perspectives and, and peoples into management and into corporate boards and into, um, into the workplace. Um, and Trump ran on a what he called an anti PC platform. You know, he believed that the biggest problem in this country, I think he said this a few times, was that we're too PC. We we care too much about diversity, inclusion, not offending people. So the way I view it is there are certain group of companies that are very progressive and no one has to tell them to uh, employ people of, from different races and, and uh, genders and, and sexual orientation. They're doing it because they, they know it's important. There's another group that are sort of coming along behind that are starting to wake up to this and they see the business case for it. They know that it makes them more competitive for, um, they, they can hire, it makes them more competitive in a business sense. And then you have a, probably the majority of companies that aren't really persuaded yet that there's a value to diversity. And this is where I think Trump's influence can be felt in that if he is skeptical about it and he sends the signals that he doesn't really care about it and that business, then those business leaders may not make it a priority. They may no longer take the meeting with their diversity officer. They may no longer feel the need to uh, attend minority cultural events, for example, or, or speak at, say, an NAACP dinner. They may just sort of skip it. Where once they, where once they may have felt some pressure, even if they didn't believe it, they may have felt some social obligation to um, employ and, and further diversity. They may no longer feel that. And I think that that is one of the concerns. The article, what struck me about the article is that you wrote uh, in a two-pronged way. It was the political aspects of diversity inclusion at the White House and also the private sector. Uh, yeah, one of yeah. the things that mostly stood out to me was, 
what you pointed out with the EEOC, which is the Equal sure. Employment Opportunity Commission, which sets and enforces the rules against workplace discrimination. Uh, this is the part that actually could be revamped to fit Trump or Bannon's viewpoints. What do you think might happen here, and how bad could this get? What we do know is that the president can appoint the chair of the EEOC. There's five commissioners, and the, the president identifies one of those to be chair. Um, and some of those appointees were uh, were Bush appointees, and therefore uh, Trump could could name one of them to be chair. Um, he could also he also appoints the uh, the chief counsel, which is sort of the as I understand it, sort of the main uh, administrative the administrative head of of the EEOC. And so those are those are significant, and those positions help set the direction and tone of the EEOC. Now, some of the things that are that some of the the levers that are out there, for example, is that next year the EEOC was going to require businesses to start reporting. Um, pay by gender and race. But going forward, the EOC would be able to see what companies have been laggards in gender equality or, or, or paying uh, people of different races the same. Um, and Republicans have already feared this and have opposed it, thinking this is very intrusive and, and uh, maybe an overreach. And there's reason to believe that uh, a Trump administration would be um, friendly to those Republican views and may repeal that that initiative. That's just one of a number of things that right. uh, Trump could do and uh, in, in going forward with the EEOC. A lot of people are concerned that corporations and media companies are for some reason going to start changing their attitudes because somehow Trump has enforced, listen, I don't need minorities to run yeah. this country uh, whatsoever. Um, do you feel that there's going to be a loss in seeing the value of hiring diverse employees you know, in the next four years? I think this is really an interesting question because it gets down to what do companies feel there's an intrinsic value in, in having a diverse workforce or are they just doing it because they feel some sort of social pressure to do so? And I think that probably comes down to a company by company question. I do know that the company, the leaders that I have heard from, uh, you know, I quoted Ernst & Young in my article, that's the big uh, accounting and consulting firm, but also um, Richard Branson, uh, who uh, he's British, but he runs the Virgin, the Virgin Media Group. They have said they're absolutely not backing down from this. They understand the value of it. And I think there's a big slug of American companies that feel that way, that this is this is now part of their DNA, that they that they value being diverse, that they want to they want to attract. Uh, what I worry about is the you know the smaller employers, the ones who feel like this is going to be you know the mom and pop companies, the you know regional employers, um, the ones who have, don't have the sort of the robust human resources apparatus to identify minorities and don't want to invest in those efforts, um, those are the ones I think that may be swayed here. And I think it just bears watching. And then, you know, they're one of the, the conclusions that I came up, reported in my article is that if, if the, if the government isn't going to enforce these and the private sector isn't going to do the right thing, then people will have to resort to, to the, um, the courts. And that's actually what I wanted to ask you about. What yeah. positive advice do you have for the diverse workforce moving forward? Is there a future for them now in corporate America? 
I think it's generally people should be thoughtful about their their opportunities, look around and understand what the law is and what their rights are under the law. And if they feel that they have uh, grounds, they, they should um, pursue appropriate remedies. Well, you could read Oliver Staley's article for eight years, the White House champion workplace diversity and inclusion. What now at QZ.com. Thanks, Oliver, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Brad, can you give me your full name and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Brad Burfist, that's B-E-R-F-A-S. Um, I'm actually a, I'm an attorney. I specialize in divorce litigation as well as mediation. In your law practice, have you dealt with same-sex marriage laws? I have. Let's hypothetically say that Pence and Bannon want to get rid of same-sex marriage. Can this happen legally? If they have the white people on the Supreme Court, I mean, now we know that, you know, they're in the process of appointing a, you know, different justices. If that so happens and you get the people that, quote unquote, will you do for me, I do for you, as they say in this world, could that possibly happen to get it overturned? Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say no. Uh, that could be a possibility. And hypothetically speaking, like you said, it's definitely not number one priority, whether or not it's number 20 or 25. I don't even think it's up there, to be honest with you. But whether it's 20 or 100, could the reality happen that perhaps it's something that's looked into, um, something where it's voted on, something where the decision goes the reverse to overturn um, Supreme Court decision uh, and reverse the, the threat, so to speak, and then make it a 5-4 decision the other way. Yeah. Let me ask you, as a Trump supporter, what were you looking for in Trump that you weren't getting with the Obama administration and that you didn't feel that you were going to get with the Clinton administration? Well, I, I think it's a new beginning. I think it's, uh, you know, we've had eight years of, of, of uh, uh, presidents who honestly, um, you know, just puts himself in the White House and really didn't do much. Obamacare was a disaster. It still is a disaster. Are you dubious about Trump's character in any way? I mean, his, his, his character, I think, again, is to me the type of person, I could bring this up, I think he's a bigger scale of Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor of New York. Trump is on a bigger, obviously a bigger scale to have a lot of the characteristics that he had. And, you know, again, does he have his faults? No one's perfect in this world. Of course he does. But you're willing to take risks more on his faults than on Clinton's faults. I, I, I totally understand it. Now, here's another question. The, the, the stigma from the left to the right about Trump being president is that there's this populism movement that's going on that's very anti-immigration. Are you for it or are you against it? I'm, I'm not anti-immigration, but I'm anti-illegal alien. Uh, I think so we all are. I think we can all agree on that, yes. Well, I, I, yes and no, but the media or certain people come out and say, you know, when they, when they try to take certain lines from, from Trump, they basically say, oh, he's against immigration or, he's, you know, he's against all, all individuals coming into this country and build a wall and let's throw them all out. That's not what he's saying. And, that, and if people understand what's going on, He's basically saying the illegal aliens, the immigrants that don't register and take advantage of our system and take jobs away from people that are citizens of the United States, let alone the fact that it's been shown that the illegal aliens, um, to a certain degree, are cause for a lot of the terrorism in this country. 
if you eliminate those people by making by registering them in the state or not allowing them in in the first place, yeah, I'm totally for it because that would stop. It would give jobs back to uh, the Americans that are citizens and not having to pay all the you know with with people that have school loans and trying to make better of themselves in America. They are losing out on the jobs because of these illegal aliens. So if they come in and they want to register and be doctor, absolutely bring them in. The more the merrier. That's the type of country we are. Now, you know that you live in a blue state. It's a Democratic state. And you're obviously mm-hmm. a Trump supporter. Have you had any uh, conflicts with your friends, with family that, uh, that might disagree with you? Uh, the fact that you live in New York and that uh, Governor Cuomo just went out and said we're a refuge state. Anything that is basically against what Trump said is what we're for. Uh, absolutely. Um, I've had things with, you know, close friends of mine that feel, the com- you know, the complete opposite of what I've stated to you or what I've stated in the past. But in fact, I actually had a conversation with a good friend of mine who I went to law school this morning with. Um, and the one thing we did agree on at this point in time is, you know, whatever you say about uh, Mr. Trump, it's time to move on. The country has spoken. Stop the insanity with all these protests and let's unite together as a country and show the world at large that we are taking the world back. We are America. And at the same time, you know, uh, we should be together, not divided at this point. And that was the one thing that we did agree on because I mean, it came up in conversation regarding the unfortunate situation of the protest that blocked the road. And unfortunately, a man died because the ambulance couldn't get through. Um, no one's saying people can't protest, people can't be peaceful in protesting, but this is more of a thing of, you know, you voted, your, your candidate, you know, candidate lost, and time to move on. If it was the flip side around, I could imagine what would be going on in the media right now. That will conclude our 12th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Sean Illing, Oliver Staley, Brad Burfus, and Sean Braswell for being on the show. I hope some of these interviews helped you understand, relate, or even learn a thing or two of our new dawn of American politics with Trump as our chosen president. Let's continue to have the discussion. Email me at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com or tweet at me at Jack Rico Official and share your opinions and thoughts and how you're feeling about Trump becoming our new president. That's it for now. Thanks for listening and may God bless us all. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.